You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, our colleague Sam Potter recently published a story that the moment it published, we started talking about it, and we wanted to, to bring it on to this episode. Um, what was the story, and why did it catch your attention? Uh, it was really a story about the 50th anniversary of the index fund, and a lot of people, really, when they think of the index fund, they think of Vanguard and Bogle, which launched theirs, I believe, in 76. But the real birth of the fund was uh, four or five years before that. And so the guy behind it uh, was interviewed in uh, Sam's story. And this is a, there was a lot that was going on pre-Vanguard. And I think uh, getting at that and looking at that is really interesting. But largely, look, it's the 50th anniversary of the index fund. This is an ETF show. ETFs would not exist if it wasn't for the index fund. So the index fund is sort of the, the root which has sprung all of this um, all these other things. And it's been obviously taken, people have taken it and run with it. So to talk to the person who is even pre-Bogle, uh, you know, is really exciting. And, and we have him today. His name is Mac McQuown, and he'll be joining us from California for this episode, as well as Sam Potter from London. This time on Trillions, meet the man who started the $11 trillion index revolution. Sam, Mac, welcome to Trillions. Thank you. Good, good morning and hello from Sonoma Wine Country. Okay, Sam, can you set the stage? How did you decide that this was going to be the story that, that you were going to pursue? How did I, how did I find Mac? Well, um, about six months ago or so, I was actually on a call with uh, Salim Ramji, who's the global head of iShares at BlackRock. And um, it was just an introductory call. You know, we hadn't spoken before, so... Uh, we were just chatting, um, and I was telling him that I was getting really interested in the sort of science of indexing. You know, um, what was what was kind of underpinning the ETF tidal wave, if you like, that's coming through markets. And and he and I said, oh, I'm kind of getting into the history of it, of how the how Wall Street got built. And and I said, I'm I'm reading Capital Ideas by by Peter Bernstein. You know, the the history of Wall Street. And he said, oh, oh, well, you you must know about Matt McQuown then. Um, I said, I, I don't actually know that name. He said, uh, he said, you must know this guy. This is this is the guy. This is where it started. And I did the obvious. I thought, I, I thought it was Bogle or whatever. He said, no, it's Matt. He's still around. He's in wine country having, you know, this great life. I said, I, I haven't seen his name in the book, though. And he said, keep reading. And then sure enough, I was reading Capital Ideas uh, like one or two weeks later, and I read this. The first wedge into this system was driven by a man with the fine Scottish name of John Andrew McQuown. 
McQuown has a boyish mop of hair that, though now grayish white, still tumbles down over his forehead. So I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta track down Mac. Um, so yeah, I, I, I sort of tracked him down. He, he's also on the board of uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors, which of course is just getting into the ETF industry now. And they helped me uh, get hold of Mac, and he was gracious enough to to do an interview, and it was uh, it was fascinating stuff. Mac, can you rewind the clock? 50 plus years now and tell us how did you get the idea for the index fund well it's the story is kind of convoluted as as all kinds of uh evolutionary transformative processes seem to be when i when i was doing graduate work at harvard i was uh, harvard business school i was working with a professor from from uh, sloan school at, at mit who had collected a bunch of data from barons on common stock uh, on Friday closes. And I was doing programming. I had been involved in programming. And uh, I, I was fascinated by the apparent discrepancy between the behavior of share prices over time uh, from a normal probability distribution you know, a nice bell-shaped curve. Well, it doesn't actually look like that. And fast forward about four or five years, and I'm in New York, and I ended up at a meeting through more serendipity at Merrill Lynch when uh, Jim, Professor Jim Laurie and Professor uh, Lawrence Fisher were presenting their initial findings on return on common stocks that Merrill Lynch had funded. And I went up to Professor Laurie afterwards, and I asked him a question about these fat-tailed distributions as they were coming to be known. And he said, whoa, well, we have a graduate student who knows something about that subject. That's his dissertation. His name is Gene Fama. And one thing led to another, and I went out to visit my family west of Chicago, and I ended up spending the Monday morning after Thanksgiving of 1963, I remember vividly, having a conversation with Gene Fama. And he introduced me to Merton Miller. And uh, all of a sudden, I realized that this, what I was suspicious of was maybe not entirely ill-founded, but it was naive relative to what Gene was actually working on. Well, one thing led to another, and I ended up being asked by an executive at IBM to give a talk uh, at the IBM Executive Center at San Jose, south of San Francisco, uh, in January of 64. And in the audience was Ransom Cook, who was the chairman of Wells Fargo. Well, I went back to New York, and a, and a few days later, a week later, I got a phone call from from uh, Ransom Cook. And he says, uh, I, I would like you to come back to San Francisco and meet some of my colleagues. So, of course, I took a couple of days off and went back to San Francisco and I met a number of people. And I went back into Ransom's office and he said to me, so how much, how much money are you making in your, in your job in New York? And I said, uh, $6,000 a year. And he said, uh, how about, I offered you a job for 18,000. Would you come to work for me starting immediately? Well, you could have, you could have knocked me over with a feather. 
So I get back to New York and I tell my wife about this and then she's not exactly thrilled. But the long and the short of it is I took the job and we moved to San Francisco and we began to work on what Ransom called the investment management problem. Bear in mind that computers had just come to the fore in, in, in major banks and they were mostly being used for accounting purposes, uh, was it, which is exactly what had been uh, handled by those with green eye sh sh shades and armbands prior. But now the cost had gone up by an order of magnitude. And Ransom said to me, I think it's about time we start looking at what's going on in, in the data. Well, you got to get that he was incredibly foresightful. And the fact that I was hired by the chairman uh, really meant that the um, primary operatives in the investment department and in the trust department um, really didn't have very much to say, especially since he wanted me to set up an ind independent group to do the work, which we did. And he personally funded it. He, we, we were removed from the Wells Fargo budgeting process and given a budget by the chairman. Well, um, I have to tell you, the first thing I did was go back to Chicago and have a conversation with Gene Fama. And we began, uh, he, he introduced me to Myron Scholes and Fisher Black. And I made a deal with those guys uh, to come work on this problem. Uh, and before all of the deaths settled, which was several odd years later, we, we had had 12 different academic consultants working in various, with various ways and on various aspects of this puzzle. But what's really interesting about those 12 is that today, if you look back at those 12, six of them have won Nobel Prizes. So there was a heady group. And how that happened, I don't know, but Ransom Cook and his successor, Dick Cooley, funded that research effort. And the upshot was what we called market portfolios. That you, you were better off with a portfolio containing every name in the market than any subset, including any index. In fact, Larry Fisher made an, an astute observation. He simulated every possible portfolio from the original CRISP data set, which started in 1926 and ended in 1960. And what he noticed was the distributions were bimodal. And what differentiated the two modes was whether the portfolio contained IBM or not. So if you had missed IBM, you would have had a distinctly different investment experience if you'd owned everything on the New York Stock Exchange. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You mentioned the uh, investment management problem, as you described it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that issue was as you guys saw it? 
Well, I know. I tell you, Sam, I've thought about that question an awful lot in the, over the years for various reasons. But I can I can kind of give you my synoptic view of the investment management problem. Ransom didn't like the way uh, this the investment management process was working at the bank. He was suspicious of the way portfolios were being constructed. Just pure intuition. Let me give you a specific example. Wells was just getting into the trust uh, advisory business for pension funds at the time. And the largest client they had, whose name I remember vividly and will not identify, had a pension fund of, of about a half a billion dollars. And it was invested in 25 names. And his intuition was, and he wouldn't have stated it quite this way, but that that portfolio was under-diversified. Well, uh, that would go down as the understatement of the month. And he, and he couldn't get an answer out of the investment department that satisfied him. And that in, in is exactly why he went, it was invited to and went to this conference that IBM had put on about down in San Jose about bringing uh, analytical procedures to databases. And, and so it, it just it just was an outcropping of his intuition. Well, of course, he was exactly right. As you work through all, all of the stuff that we were doing in those days, the, the one thing that struck me and a lot of us as just how representative the New York Stock Exchange is or isn't. So we discovered that Nico had collected a bunch of data on Japanese first section of the Tokyo Exchange. And Wells Fargo used its relationship to, to Nico, actually to the Industrial Bank of Japan, who in, in, in turn in, in introduced me to Nico. And we got an opportunity to run some tests on the Nico data. And basically what we found was the same thing which is the best portfolio was the portfolio that contained all names. Same exact algorithms, same assumptions, same everything. So talk about an out-of-sample experience. That's about as distant from, from sample bias as you can get. So anyway, that is kind of the base, let me call it, from which what we called, as I said, we called it market, market funds. And we began to look at the S&P 500. It's just, and remember the S&P 500 didn't actually exist until somewhere around 1957 or 56 or 57 or eight or nine, somewhere in there. Prior to that, there were variations that S&P had, but the 500 itself, I think originated in, in the early, in the mid fifties. And then they went back and, and, and back assembled the data to recalculate the S&P 500 back. I forget how far, quite a few, decades, several decades, four or five decades. So while they were doing that, we got to know the S&P people and what was the basis upon which they chose the 500 stocks. And that made a lot of us pretty suspicious because instead of having a, a, a random sample or some kind of a, like the Dow 30 index, which is pretty subjective as well, the investment committee at S&P was choosing the 500. 
So we were kind of right back in the same puzzle. But in any event, the S&P 500 was becoming the benchmark by which people were judging portfolios. So it was perfectly obvious that the thing you should do is just offer the S&P 500 at, at a price about a quarter of what they were selling uh, investment management for at the time, uh, which was, by the way, about, about 100 basis points versus 25. And of course, now that 25 is down to five or whatever it is. But the point of the matter is what was clear to us, I think, pretty much at the beginning was that the more names you had in the portfolio, the better. And we were instrumental also in, in uh, getting uh, the beginning of data collected for the American exchange and also the OTC market, which became NASDAQ. You mentioned the S and you know a, a portfolio that tracked the S and P five hundred as the way to go, but that that wasn't the first fund, was it? That wasn't what you did with the, no. the very first one. Can you tell us a bit about the the construction of that one? Well, the first the first fund was actually the the all New York fund, which was about six hundred names, but we made the mistake initially of equal weighting the portfolio in our simulations. And it became apparent right away that there was something wrong with that. And of course, what happened was we realized that it needed to be market capitalization weighted, not equal weighted. Because of course, what happens when you equal weight a portfolio like that is you overweight the riskiest stocks. So the market cap weights were became all of a sudden the unambiguous preference for those kinds of portfolios. But it was not the S&P. It was the all New York. I have a question. So, and I like asking this about people who were right there and at the inception moment. When you locked into that moment where you're like, the more stocks, the better, the diversified portfolio is better, which is obviously the inception moment of what would be the index fund. Did you know it was a big idea at the time? Or was it just another, you know, part of your day and you were, had your mind on other things? Like how much did you identify the, the legs this idea had? Well, Eric, I can tell you right now, I did not have my mind on anything else. That I promise you. My work week in those in those days was about eighty hours, and and you know, and and the Wells Fargo people, to their credit, realized that. And you know, within a very short time, my 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 wages went from eighteen thousand to forty. So I, I was by far the highest paid uh, young vice president at, at Wells Fargo Bank. And, and I was the reason I, they, I got away with it was because the chairman approved it. But if you don't think I wasn't uh, conscious of the fact that we had uncovered something serious, uh, that I was. All of us were. I don't mean to say that I was alone by no means. I mean, Myron and Fisher. And, and, and we, we, had a lot of, we had a lot of influence from Jack Trainer, who was a very important thinker about this topic in the beginning. Uh, and the more we had conversations with various academics, including people from MIT and, and Berkeley and Stanford and so forth, the, the more academic interest uh, was surfaced. And, and I think and that while the Chicago guys were leading the crowd, and especially Gene Fama and Larry Fisher and Jim Laurie, and, and, and the godfather, I think, was really Merton Miller. 
you have to give him probably the, the seminal original credit for uh, the analytical foundation that the Chicago School was based on. But when you got right down to it, uh, this was still the influence of computers and data in its very nascent years. Remember, I'm very fond of pointing out that the first stock traded was the was the India East it was the East India uh, uh, Company. Uh, it was traded on the on the fledgling Amsterdam Exchange in 1602, and it wasn't until 1968 that we had an algorithm for measuring risk-adjusted performance. So for 366 years, people were constructing portfolios with no feedback loops. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we take a lot of that for granted, uh, for sure. And I, I guess I would say, okay, so you have this big idea, you, you know, it's a good idea. Can you talk about how you tried to implement it? And the first funds and, and you know, how it went to try to get to actually put money into in, in indexing? Well, again, you know, all I would say is serendipity uh, rears its proverbial head. Uh, Keith Schwader uh, was a graduate of, uh, of the Graduate School of Business from Chicago, and his family owned Samsonite in Denver. And Jim Laurie in, uh, introduced me to, to Keith, and, and he came to San Francisco, and we had, comp we had discussions about this. And immediately, uh, he wanted to see the, some of the Samsonite pension fund invested in, in what we would today call an index fund. So we, we, we kind of invented an index fund that would, would work. And that was the first one. Well, immediately thereafter, or very close to immediately thereafter, the, the Wells Fargo pension fund, we had a big uh, uh, shot of capital put into Remember, this is a commingled trust now. It's not a registered mutual fund. But the long and the short of it is, it became apparent very soon that we needed broader diversified portfolios. And because the S&P 500 was such a popular uh, referent, it became apparent that that was one of the places to go. And, and of course, it wasn't long thereafter until we had an opportunity to, to meet Jack Bogle and and uh, and he was interested in and uh, he was already interested for his own reasons in the idea of what amounted to an index fund i'm not sure he called it that in fact i'm not sure anybody did but i got introduced to jack bogle by uh, a former sec commissioner who I, who I had met at the university of chicago's center for research and securities prices that lori uh, engineered shortly after the 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 you know the security the center for secure research and securities prices the crisp data came into existence uh, he created this biannual seminar twice a year seminar that had about 30 different major financial institutions attending and 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 that that powwow two-day powwow spring and fall I, I went to the very first one, which was in 64. And I went to everyone until I 
I left Wells Fargo and they invited me back on several occasions uh, thereafter. So I was uh, not only uh, through my, my period at, through 74 at Wells, but pretty close to 1980, I was still going to the CRISP seminar. Well, that's where all this stuff was being discussed. Uh, First National Bank of Chicago, JP Morgan, Chase, you know, all the major names in banking, they, they were all members of the CRISP seminar and were listening to all this stuff going on. Well, so th this, this influence that, that index funds was beginning to have was, didn't, was not limited to Wells Fargo by any stretch of the imagination. And a, a quick, quick question. You mentioned meeting Bogle. Were you still in the early, early 70s here, or was this more towards 74, 75? I was around 74, I'm, I'm going to say. Okay. So did he come to you? That's after he left Wellington, which was an active fund. He was... No, it was it was uh, during... Okay. It was during the formation of Vanguard. Gotcha. It's interesting. Um, That obviously was a huge situation um, where Bogle was basically fired by the people he had acquired at, uh, when he was running Wellington. He was an advocate of active funds to a degree. Then he starts Vanguard as a back office company. The index fund just is a is, is a way for him to not manage money while managing money. It was kind of an interesting loophole. My question to you is, as you saw Vanguard come out with this unique mutual ownership structure, and then they, they go and get the index fund, how did you see that? Like, because the mutual ownership structure, I think, probably deserves a, a lot of credit for constantly lowering the fees of the index funds over the years. But how did you see the, the potential of Vanguard early on as well? Well, Eric, uh, you put your finger on one of my hot buttons. Let me tell you what actually happened at Wells Fargo. We got registered at the SEC, what was called the Stagecoach Fund. But in June 71, the Supreme Court came down in a decision of the Investment Company Institute versus the Comptroller of the Currency as giving permission to Citibank to sell commingled mutual funds being a violation of Glass-Steagall. Remember, Glass-Steagall separated investment banks from commercial banks. We were ready to sell the stagecoach fund in, in Ransom Cook's branches, and it got shot down by that Supreme Court decision. ICIV camp, June 1971, look it up. The banks could sell commingled trusts, but they could not sell registered mutual funds. They were securities, not loans, and not trusts. Remember the idiocy emerging from Congress created those laws. They did not know what they were doing. And I guess I would say, as usual. So you basically were unable to really capitalize and commercialize on the idea because of that ruling in law. And that's when, when I met Jack Bogle and told Ransom and Dick what Jack wanted to do. He said, 
give them all our research. We're restricted. We can't do it, but it needs to get done. You can read in Jack's writings, too. He, he gave us credit for it. Did you and Jack exchange Christmas cards from there for? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I had a very personal relationship with Jack. We weren't really very close. Remember, we were we were oceans apart, or not like what a continent apart. I mean, I saw him fairly often, and and um, before Jack died, you know, we got the the CME uh, award. I can't even think when that was for innovation in in corporate finance. So, Mac, uh, you, you, Wells Fargo um, was limited. In, in the way it could deploy this. And um, obviously Jack benefited immensely from that. But I think we should also note that um, Wells Fargo did, did capitalize on, on it and it and had an incredible legacy because what you built or what you started at Wells eventually became uh, Barclays Global Investors, if I'm right. And that launched iShares, which was then bought by, by BlackRock. So, um, right. There was an incredible. It was the beginning of an incredible uh, kind of achievement. Well, no, that's right. I mean, you know, we created Wells Fargo Investment Advisors to be the advisor to the Stagecoach Fund. Uh, that was the original uh, plan before ICIV Camp came down. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, Cooley made me the chairman of of WFIA. And we hired uh, an independent uh, guy to become the CEO. Came from outside the bank, and uh, and we were all, we were all literally we were literally ready to go to market when ICIV Camp came down. And I remember June seventy one like it was yesterday. We were on the on the cusp of doing that. Mac, I have a question related to that time. How what was the computing speed and prowess like at at that time? Because obviously, I'm I'm guessing these machines were huge. How much? What was it like to feed data into that? And how long were you waiting to get the the feedback? I mean, three hundred year feedback loop was one thing, but like you know, this was state at the state of the art at the one at the time, right? Well, that's a very very good question, Joel. Because well, you know, another. Another innovation that was uh, just coming uh, to the fore in those days was what we called time sharing. Well, time sharing was the idea that you could hook up a, a bunch of different, as it were, teletype machines to a single computer, and the computer could multiplex the input and output from a teletype machine to a computer. And the IBM 360-67 was the first commercial scale computer of that kind. And, and at Wells Fargo, we were just adopting 360s at the time. And I convinced uh, Cooley to let us buy a, a, a 67 and we, so that we could have a terminal, actually two terminals in the management sciences department. And, and the reason he, he went for it was that he, another group at the bank, were working on the idea of an automated teller terminal. And it became apparent that we could utilize, we could have teller terminals 
that were being multiplexed by the same kind of a computer, where when you went into the bank to cash a check, you could actually in real time discover whether or not there was a balance in your account. So there was there was a movement in the direction of what I call remote computing. And we had, we, the management science department had access to that 36067 immediately upon when it came out. And that was about 1966 or 1967, something like that. So we had gone from having to fuss around at an IBM data center uh, to having our own uh, teletype machine with access to the data that we stored on the 36067. So that was another very critical thing that, that Dick Cooley did was uh, introduce time sharing or, or multiplexing, right? Terminal multiplexing into the picture. And that was about the same time. So all of a sudden the productivity of, of these guys doing analytical work skyrocketed because you didn't have to go stand in the front of a computer and feed punch cards into it. The long and the short of it is it was concurrent that that occurred. And again, I would characterize that as yet more serendipity. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You know, you said earlier you worked with, what was it, six people who went on and won Nobel uh, Prizes? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, just uh, you were, you know, a pioneer, effectively, right? And working with a ton of smart people. And I'm just wondering, like, for those of us who get to, you know, you know, look back on your story, what what do you feel like the keys of that, of, of good collaboration were? Well, that's a that's a very that's a very interesting question, Joel. I mean, we could spend the rest of the day on that question. Uh, well, you need to have a certain openness. At the same time, you have a very critical mind, and you're you're and you're willing to challenge anything. It, it, I would characterize it as the Chicago School at work. I mean, I think that uh, you know Milton Friedman was a champion of that point. Uh, and several others before him, including F.A. Hayek and so forth. But, you know, really critical thinking in, in economics was generally missing until about that same time. Now, when I say in economics, I'm referring to predominantly macroeconomics and not microeconomics. But critical thinking kind of came to both. In, uh, with the onset of the computer and the database. And prior to that, there was an awful lot of, I, I regard Keynes, for example, as gibberish. It just, it doesn't make any sense. When you put the blade to it, it doesn't stand the test. That just wasn't available and, until considerably later. I, I, I guess it was like a perfect storm in that period. And it was influencing all kinds of things, index funds being only one. 
So can you apply that, that critical thinking to the current moment? Well, I'm, I'm not a very big fan of, um, I'm not a very big fan of, let me call it, uh, ungrounded, meaning without data analysis. I, I just, I characterize it as subjectivism versus data-driven science. And the world is awash in subjectivism and data-driven data science is only beginning to invade the hallowed halls of subjectivism. And, and of course, politics is the, uh, is the epicenter of subjectivism along with religion. And I, I can't tell the difference between politics and religion. But Matt, um, Matt what about uh, for the in investment industry, for the uh, state of indexing now with you know, 11 trillion or whatever we are at now. Um, when you look at that now, what, what's your sort of critical thought process? Well, Sam, you know, 11 trillion is a, a major understatement, right? Because that's only the admitted indexing. Just think about the closet indexing. There's a lot of incentive to keep fees high. And the way to do that is to do an index fund, but call it something else. Or let me put it another way, to do a market portfolio, right? It's not necessarily an index fund. But there's a, you know, cl closet uh, passive is everywhere. I would, my guess is at least two thirds of the market is passive. And maybe, maybe, maybe more like 85%. But it would be very difficult to put a number to that because you'd have to collect an awful lot of data. But... It, 11 trillion is an understatement by a lot. Um, let me jump in here with that whole premise because um, 11 trillion is the public fund that's quote passive, but some of that is in smart beta where they took the index fund and they put active uh, metrics overlays. in overlays. And on the flip, you're right. There's a bunch of active discretionary funds that basically hold the S&P. Um, so it's very blurry, which is... My answer to people when they say, oh, my God, passive's taking over, it's going to ruin the stock market, we're all going to die, which is this sort of fear of, but I'm like, it's so nuanced and gray between active and passive, it just doesn't bother me. But I guess I would like to get your take on some of the people who fear that passive is growing too big and is distorting fundamentals, uh, could result in some kind of a market structure issue. They, don't, they just don't understand the situation, Eric. I mean, uh, I'm right back to my basic point. It's subjectivism versus data-driven science. When you, when you allow the data to speak to you, that clears up that fog. Remember, share prices get formed because people are buying and selling shares, right? If buying and selling shares stopped, I don't know what you would have for prices. You wouldn't have any prices. But do you think buying and selling is going to stop? I mean, it's, and it's not because somebody thinks they know more than the market does. It, there's a whole lot of reasons why people buy and sell. And some of it is valuation related and some of it is liquidity related and some of it is a trust account related. And I mean, it's just, there's an, 
impossible assortment of motives behind people buying and selling shares. And that's just, that's just never going to stop. I mean, I'm never worried about that one. And just generally the ETF, right? So you've got index funds were launched. Uh, Bogle popularized them with Vanguard. He was not a fan of ETFs. He, he wanted people to stick in the long-term ETFs come out. They trade, some of them are used in place of futures. What's your take on the ETF world? And did you ever meet Nate Most and Steve Bloom at Amex when they were coming up with their ETF uh, for SPY? Oh, yeah, sure. you got to remember what an ETF is. Remember what preceded? You remember closed-end mutual funds? And then there was opened-end mutual funds. And ETF is just an amalgam of those two things, right? And we were talking about ETFs way before they existed. It, it, again, it's, it's right back to, to foolishness in Congress of trying to distinguish between closed-end funds and open-end funds. It was protocols that were put in place by regulation, not, not by economics. So you, you could have a, an ETF that was closed, that would be called a closed-end fund. And you could have a conventional mutual fund that was that is open-ended, whose shares were traded in a competitive market. That would be an ETF, right? There's just there's nothing novel and new about an ETF. It's just an it's an amalgam of opened and closed funds. We should have had them a long, long time ago. We we talked about that idea going way back. We talked about that idea to the commissioners at the SEC. And again, I'm the ex-commissioner whose name I'm not going to use because I haven't seen him in years. And I don't even know whether he's alive, but he was a champion of thinking through new things, even though in his days as a commissioner of the SEC, that was the last thing that they were doing. They weren't thinking, they were just regulating. There's a distinction. Mac, I want to ask before we, we finish, uh, presumably uh, you're invested in index funds, I imagine? Oh, yes, indeed. Are you like a buy the total market fund kind of guy, or do you sort of have maybe more index funds that you specialize at all or customize? Well, if you take all the different kinds of index funds and put them in a portfolio, you get a market portfolio. <laughs> So you're port. You're a very simple portfolio, you know, kind of investor. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm an entrepreneur. Most of my wealth is involved in startup companies, right? Well, that actually, I, I had a, a a related question, which was, um, you know, Sam in the article reminded me that you were a mechanical engineer by training and I, I'm by by schooling. Just wondering how how do you think that informs your your outlook? I mean, the obviously you're. You, you made a really clear point on being, you know, prizing ob objectivity and data above all else. But like, talk to about talk to us about how you look at the world through that lens of a being a me mechanical engineer. I I grew up on a farm. Uh, I split my early life between my mother and father. Uh, my father was a businessman. We lived in the at the edge of this little town, and his elder brother ran the family farming operation, which was seven miles away. So I ended up growing up in two families. Uh, one 
in the, in literally in the country where we were we were growing all kinds of grains and legumes and so forth to feed a whole assortment of livestock, right? And I've I've been often asked what because I'm very fond of my early life on the farm, and I'm often asked what did you learn when you were on the farm, and I have evolved a, a, a good answer to that question. I learned that you can't bullshit a bull; it does not work, and if if you get into the world of data, it's the same point. If the data doesn't, if it's not in the data, it's not there. Now, mind you, teasing conclusions out of big data sets is a, a complicated topic. And of course, I began to do just exactly that when I was an engineering student. And remember, that was when computers first began. So I started programming computers when I was still an engineering student. And I mean, I mean, don't don't ask me why, because I have no idea. That's just the way it was. Um, the last question we always ask on trillions. Really curious what you're going to say. Um, what is your favorite ETF ticker? <laughs> well, uh, I have a good answer to that. None. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I think um, uh, Jack Bogle had a very similar response. No, it, right. Bogle's response was, because, you know, he wasn't a fan of ETFs, was CRZY, which isn't a ticker, but it's what he thinks of them. You guys are similar in that in that answer uh, with yeah, not really giving one. <laughs> Max, Sam, thanks so much for joining us on Trillion. My, my pleasure, you guys. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Sam at Sam J. Potter. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.